I have spent a good chunk of this week um, with a friend of mine, um, kind of doing an inventory of my life. And then I came home and looked at my notes, and I thought, you know, if I'd have just done what I'm going to talk to our people about doing, <laughs> I might not have had to have an inventory. You'll understand in a moment. Where do you want me to stand? Am I here? Is this good? Um, just towards the middle there. About there? All right. Great. Yeah. Could you tend to walk? I, I do, yes. I tend to move. Um, who's your best friend? Who's your best friend? I will be honest with you. I don't have a lot of friends in my friendship list. I never have. Um, I lived in Iowa as a very young child. I don't remember anyone from there other than an older couple that our family kept in touch with, and they used to babysit me when mom and dad needed to go someplace. Uh, so I know two people from that location. Uh, but I wouldn't, they're not peers. They would have been much older than me, obviously. Um, I really don't remember anyone until we moved to Lodi, and I was there at six, and I remember one young man that was my friend that I played with, and, and after I left Lodi, he came and visited me. Um, I lived at Old Oak Ranch, as many of you know. I had a lot of friends there, deer, few skunks, talked to a lot of trees. Uh, people came and went, but there wasn't a whole lot of people that lived there. Um, there weren't many children that were my age that lived there on the staff. So in that era, I can remember a, a guy named John and a guy named Peter and, and then Ron. And that pretty much gets me to college. That, that's, that's my list. So who's your best friend? Who's your best friend? You know what a best friend is, don't you? That's the person that you're comfortable enough to confide in. You can share your life with. You can, you can share not only fun, but that's the person that you can be silly with and it's okay. That's the person you can giggle around and that's okay. That, that's the person that's even safe enough to cry with and that's okay. That's the person that you share your hopes and your dreams. I mentioned Peter. He and I, growing up, we were going to both be doctors at Mayo Clinic. He did an internship there. I didn't. <laughs> I think I'd had about a 20-year career by the time he, <laughs> he got there. But you share your dreams. You share your hopes. You share your hurts with your best friend. Who's your best friend? Now, I'm going to confess something. I probably shouldn't, but, you know, particularly the younger generation, they say, I married my best friend. And I go, ooh, that's your <laughs> wife. You know, I consider a spouse beyond friendship, but when you really think about it, a spouse is a, 
best friend, right? I had a hard time accepting that definition. I've come to, after 40 years of being reminded that that probably is a, a pretty good definition. Who's your best friend? Who do you think God wants you to have as your best friend? Who is committed to be a best friend that sticks with you when it's good, that sticks with you when it's bad, that sticks with you when life doesn't deal fairly and you're angry, you're frustrated, you're cynical, you're judgmental, you're critical, you're filled with hatred, perhaps rage. Who wants to be a friend with that kind of person? Who wants to be a best friend with that kind of person? And yet, I submit to you this morning, we're going to look at someone, and it's going to take me a long time. In fact, this whole sermon goes to the last line before I tie it. I'm just going to tell you. It just goes all the way to the end. So if you're following along in your notes, Isaiah chapter 40 says, Have you never heard, have you never understood, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless, even youths. And that word there is one word in the Hebrew. It means young lad, young man, young, kind of the junior, senior, high age is actually who it's referencing. Even junior hires will become weak and tired. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. And young men, that's a different Hebrew word. And that actually kind of refers to the college and career gang. And they will fall in exhaustion. But those, and I'm going to add a markism. You know what the, the markisms are, right? Those are things that are just me. But those, even old geezers, who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. That's the promise but to get there, there's some things that I want to address this morning. And I've had to address them in my own life this week. Which is the irony, because I gave her the notes last Sunday. So number one, there's a danger in isolation. There is a danger in isolation. Did you hear me? There's a danger... In isolation. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 when God said, It's not good for man to be alone. To be alone. In Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper who is just right for him. Maybe that's where the best friend started. Maybe it's okay to call Jill my best friend. Do you know when we're alone, we're going to wrestle? Did you know that? When we're alone, we're going to wrestle with things. 
Look at what happened in Genesis 32. It says, This left Jacob all alone in the camp. And a man came and wrestled with him until dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of socket. The man said, let me go for dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. When we're alone, we wrestle. You say, those are nice stories, Mark, the Old Testament. I'm only a New Testament person. Fine. Look at Mark chapter 14. Jesus... Jesus was facing the most challenging human experience. You see, we all know we're going to die, right? Unless the Lord takes us. We all, but we don't know how we're going to die. We don't have the details. We don't know the depth of the struggle that we might have. Jesus knew all of that. And look what he did in Mark 14. He told them, who's them? His disciples, Peter, James, and John. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Why is his soul crushed? Remember his soul, his mind, emotions, and will. Everything there was being challenged. And he said, can you just stay here and keep watch with me? What's he saying? I'm going through a tough time. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be alone. It says he went on a little farther and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him would pass. Abba, Father, Daddy, everything is possible for you. If you have plan B, this is a good time to let me know. Did I mention, do you have a plan B? <laughs> you, read, you read the scripture and you'll know I'm not just making that up. Daddy, are you sure you don't have a plan? Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus in the darkest hour did not want to be alone. He knew he needed support. Now, did they let him down? They did. Was he judgment, judgmental of their failure? No. Because <laughs> they're human. They were tired. I want to talk about Elijah, and I don't know how I wrote that in your notes. It might just be an example of Elijah or something. Elijah has two examples, a chapter apart in the Bible. One, that he does not function alone, and he does some amazing things. And then you turn the page, or in my iPad, you scroll up. He goes from one of the most incredibly brave and strong individuals to, like, Mr. Super Coward in, in one chapter. Can we look at those things? It's in, in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. In 1 Kings 18, beginning about, about verse 30, now let me give the backdrop. There's been three years, no rain. Who's the king? Ahab. 
Who's really running the country? Jezebel. And because of their evil, there's drought on the land. Guess what? The leadership, they blame Elijah. So they've been looking all over to kill him. And Elijah appears to Obadiah and says, go get the king. He said, I'll go get him, and then when we come here, you'll be gone, and he'll kill me. He said, no, I'll I'll stick around. And we see it leads to this encounter at Mount Carmel. And so here you have Ahab, and you have Elijah, and you have 450 prophets of Baal, and 400 prophets of Asherah that work on the payroll of the queen. So it's 850 to 1. And Israel's gathered there too. And you say, well, certainly they were on Elijah's side. Not really. And do you remember the story? He said, let's make a deal. You build an altar. Here's an ox. You can pick the ex- whichever ox you think is the best sacrifice. You, p- you build an altar. You cut up your ox. You put it there. Put it on wood. Set it there. And then you pray to your God and see if fire will come and consume the offering. Now, don't go get a torch. He has to remind him several times. You don't, you don't get to go get your little butane thing. You don't get to use a Bic and some newspaper, Jerusalem Post. You just got to pray to your God. And then I'll go over here and actually says he rebuilt the altar, which means there's been one there. And I'll pray. Deal, deal. You go first. And they pray until noon. Can you imagine four hours of them doing all their stuff and cutting themselves and throwing themselves on everything? And, and of course, Elijah and Mark were cousins. Because here's what Elijah is starting to do. He's probably sleeping in. Yell a little louder. Maybe you'll wake him up. If I was there, your God is old. He probably took his hearing aid out like my uncle. He can't hear my aunt that way. Hmm? Oh, you know, your God has, he, he, he's a lot like Cousin Joe. He goes into the bathroom for a long, long time. Now, you think I'm making this up? Go home and read 1 Kings 18. It says, maybe he's relieving himself. Can you imagine? And so they get to go from noon all the way to late afternoon to evening. And here sits one man against 850 against a king and against a country that's all wanting him to die. And he has incredible courage. Why? Because the anointing of the Spirit of God is on him. So while he is one, he is not alone. And we see in a few short verses, he prays a very simple prayer. And we see that fire comes from heaven and consumes everything, not just the offering, the water he poured on it, everything. Do you think you'd be pretty emboldened if you talked to God and he did something like that in front of your whole country? Do you think, wow, yeah, 
you think, right? But turn the page. When Ahab got home, that's the king, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. <laughs> so Jezebel, one person, sent this message to Elijah. May the gods, small g, strike me and kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Verse 3. Elijah was afraid of one woman and fled for his life. What did he just do? What did he just do? He stood in front of the whole nation. And 850 to 1 in the prophet's world. He stood against them all. And now it says in verse 3, he was afraid and fled for his life. We see the angels minister to him. If you skip down to, to verse late verse 9, it says, The Lord said to Elijah, what are you doing here? In other words, why are you running? And Elijah, because God's very forgetful, needs to remind him, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now... They're trying to kill me too. I hadn't planned to read this, but it's great. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told Elijah. And Elijah stood there, and the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in that wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And do you understand there's some significance about those things? Those things were worshipped as false gods. It wasn't just an expression of power. He's saying, I'm not in those false things that are worshipped. I supersede all of those things. After the fire, <clears throat> there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. That was a powerful whisper. Because now he's reminded, and in the next few verses, he'll be reminded that he is not alone. D, since you don't have it on the screen. When we're alone, we are in a thought war. When we're alone, we're in a thought war. Ephesians chapter 6 says, In addition to all these, it's talking about the weapons of warfare, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Do you know there are three types of arrows that are mentioned in Scripture. One is kind of the arrowhead that we'd picture like a stone chiseled and put on the end of something. Uh, one might be something that's more splintered and it would have, it would, the whole thing would be 
uh, on fire. So the idea wasn't to strike and to stick. It just you'd lob it into a hayloft and it'd catch everything on fire. And the third would be an arrow that would be dipped in some kind of tar or resin or a flammable material. But it would have a point on it, and the idea was that it would hit and stick and set on fire whatever it, it stuck to. Well, you know, the fiery arrows that are referred to, that's the number three. And those are Satan's attack against our thoughts and our mind. They're lobbed in. They have a point, and they're meant to stick. Romans that are spoken about would protect themselves with a shield. And this shield, if you study history, it had different shapes and sizes, and many of you have seen movies where the front line holds their shield this way, and everybody behind them kind of does a over-the-top, so they, they kind of give the tortoise look. Well, some of those shields would, be, would have parts of them made of leather, some of them had a cover that protected the shield when it wasn't being used. It was leather. In either case, both of those uh, situations, they would use oil to keep that leather pliable because leather allowed to just be exposed to the weather over time is going to crack, and when it's cracked, it's weakened. Does that make sense? So they would use oil. And then before going into battle, particularly when they were going into battle where there were fiery arrows, they would use water. Now, I don't imply, I'm not implying that they would soak them and then make the thing so heavy they couldn't lift it. But they would wet it with the thought that, well, the arrow sticks, it won't catch fire immediately and we can remove the arrow before it catches fire. Does that sound like Ephesians 5? Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. So how do we deal with fiery arrows of the adversary? One way we deal with them is through the word. Well, we know when we hear oil, what do you think of? The presence and anointing of the Holy Spirit. When we read in James where it says, if you're sick, call for the elders of the church, let them anoint you with oil. Do you think there's anything magical about the oil? No, oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. When, when a king was anointed, what did they do? They, they pour the oil on him. What is it symbolic? That the power and spirit of God was coming upon him to enable him to be a good and faithful king. Does that make sense? Oil always refers to the presence and anointing of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Samuel 16, so David stood there among his brothers. Samuel took the flask of olive oil he brought and anointed David with oil. And look what happened. After the oil, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day forth. We're to take this shield of faith that we keep pliable with the oil of the Holy Spirit. And we keep alive and fed through the Word of God so that our faith is based in something. Does that make sense? 
Our faith is in something, not just, oh, I'm having faith. E, two are better than one. Two are better than one. Ecclesiastes says it this way. Two people are better off than one. They can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help them. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better. For a triple-braided cord is not easily broken. Remember what we're talking about? The danger of isolation. And what's the bigger topic? Who's your best friend? An example of this two are better and three are even better is found in Exodus chapter 17. And it's, it's about there's a battle and, and Moses is told to stand on this mountain. He's to hold up his staff and when he does, his army's victorious. But guess what happens to your arms after you do this a while? All you had to do was grow up in my church. Put your hands down before the fifth song. What's wrong with you? Have you backslidden? It says, as long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, why? Because he wanted to lose? No, he's human. He's tired. The Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. We'll take care of one thing, your legs. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. Do you see what happened? Now there's three. And they're never having a lull in the battle because his hands are raised. Jesus confirms this in Matthew 18. I tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there. Point two, I want to talk about the impact of shame. Do you know the impact of shame is isolation? Isolation. And I wrote the wrong reference and I apologize. Uh, I think I said Psalm 55, and it should be Psalm 51. I'm human. Let's all go home. David sinned. He planned it. He sinned once with Bathsheba. He sinned again in making sure that the husband, we tried to cover it up first, and he ended up having him killed. And then the prophet comes and says, suppose there's someone who had just one little lamb. and It's an outrage. And Nathan says, yeah, you're talking about you. You had it all. He has one thing, Bathsheba. And you took the one thing he had. From that, David writes things like, create in me a clean heart, O God. But I'm going to tell you, Jerusalem was a lot like Yuba City. Once word gets out, Everybody knows. I'm not picking on Yuba City. It's, it's true in every town. And pretty soon the story is known. And can you imagine the shame that is on a king? 
how can I ever stand in front of the people again? How can I ever face them again? But David deals with the right thing. He deals with the heart first. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. You'll say, how do we deal with shame? Well, Jesus did it for us. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Therefore, we also, since we've been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Where? Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He endured the cross. What's the next phrase? Despising the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne. Anytime there's sin, there's shame. Would you agree with me? Anytime there's sin, there is shame. The word despise there literally means to think little or nothing of. Do you know, here's what was happening. Can I, can I give you this picture? As he's on his way to Calvary, and then as he's there nailed on the cross, do you think he's just there dealing with nothing? He's there dealing not only with people ridiculing him and insulting him. He's there with the host of hell. So you thought you were going to be a savior. You thought you claimed to be the son of God. Look at you. Not only are you Dying, not only are the people you think are here to, uh, to serve you, and that's a lie, they're ridiculing you, and you're naked. You're naked. Here at the crossroads, everybody that's coming from Europe that wants to go to Africa comes by here. Anybody from Egypt that wants to go to Asia comes by here. You're at the crossroads of the world. Everybody's going to see you and wonder, what, is, what did that guy do? What was so evil about him? And some will join in mocking and ridiculing. Do you understand that that's what Satan was saying? You're a failure. You're a loser. But I want you to know in Psalm 16, this is what Jesus was doing battle. Here's what Jesus was saying. He was saying this in Psalm 16. I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. That's what he is claiming. That's what he is saying. What's he doing? He's using the Word of God to command uh, to uh, take command over the thoughts of shame and the isolation that resulted from that. He is, he is increasing his faith by quoting the word of God. He says, you will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living you, with you forever. That's how he got through it. That's how Jesus combated the shame. That's how he took little or no thought to it. Genesis 2 says, man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. 
Genesis 3, after they did what God told them not to do, look at what verse 7 says. At the moment their eyes were opened, what had happened? They felt shame. The minute there was sin, there was shame. And with shame, what did they do? They isolated themselves. They hid. They, they hid, and, and then they found fig leaves. And they, and, right? The first symptom of sin is always shame. And shame changes. Shame changes the way we see and think about ourselves. Do you know, here's what's happening. I, I want you to see this. Here's Adam and Eve. What do they do? Every night they walk with God. Every, every night they say, you know, some things came up today we don't know how to deal with. Oh, I'm glad you asked. Here's how you deal with it. You know, you told us to have dominion. We don't understand how to dominion. I'm glad you asked. Here's how you have dominion over that. Try this tomorrow. That's what went on. The minute this happened, what happened? A message came to them, and it was a message from Satan. And here's what it was. Please get this. You're defective. You're defective. Shame changes the way we see ourselves. Shame changes the way we interact with others. It destroys relational potential and puts you in isolation. Do you know shame changes the way you think about and relate to God? Shame causes us to hide from God and from each other. Do you know, part of the things that I dealt with this week, if I can be transparent, as, and, and Jill, this is no news to her. I have a tendency to embrace people this way. I want to enfold you, but I don't want you to be too close. And you know when I adopted that lie? When my dad died when I was 17. And it was like, God, and I remember where I grew up. I didn't have playmates, so who did I play catch with after dinner? My dad, who taught me how to throw football. My dad, you, you get so he was, when I got home from school, most kids put on their play clothes to go play. I put on my clothes to go find out where he's working so that I can be with him. And when he died, I felt so abandoned and so alone. And I'll be honest, I was mad at God. I even prayed this. God, if you're going to leave me with one parent, why this one? That's how I felt. And what it taught me is don't embrace someone too close because if you love, you're going to get hurt. And then I had some other minor little rejections along the way. And when you put them in perspective, they were minor or little. But when you have that mindset, I have to take care of myself. Guess how you embrace everybody like this? Do you think it had any impact on our marriage? Yeah. Then you throw in a little sin and add some shame to it. You isolate even more. Do you know when shame appears, guess what happens? You look for a scapegoat. You look for a scapegoat. Do you know God knew we'd look for a scapegoat? Why? Well, you see it in, in, in Genesis, right? Adam, why'd you do this? Who's his scapegoat? Eve. He confesses, he confesses over Eve. It's her issue. Eve goes, the devil made me do it. It is human nature to find a scapegoat rather than take responsibility. Leviticus 16, 
tells us a story about how God knew this would be the way we would be. And in the Old Testament, he said, take two male goats and present them to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. He, meaning the high priest, in this case Aaron, is to cast sacred lots to determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to the Lord and which one will carry the sins of the people to the wilderness. Aaron will present, then present as a sin offering the goat chosen by lot for the Lord. That's the one that would be sacrificed. The other goat, the scapegoat by lot to be sent away, will be kept alive. Standing before the Lord. When it's ready to be sent away to the wilderness, the people will be purified and made right with the Lord. When Aaron has finished purifying the holy place, the most holy place, the tabernacle, the honor of the altar, he must present the live goat. Now listen to what he did. Can you imagine? You think I'm preaching long today? Can you imagine this service? Aaron is to lay both hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and sins of the people of Israel. In this way, he will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. Then a man specially chosen for a task will drive the goat into the wilderness. As the goat goes into the wilderness, it will carry all the people's iniquities, sins, upon himself into the desolate land. Do you know that goat was hated? That goat was despised? That goat was rejected? Does it sound like someone we know? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. We esteemed him smitten by God. Do you see that as Adam confessed his sins over Eve, Eve confessed her sins over the snake, but God only recognizes one scapegoat? In verse 4 of Isaiah 53, it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All we, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I want you to see that Jesus was both goats. He offered the blood sacrifice that cleanses from sin, but he also dealt with the issue of shame. Just like all the sins were, were uh, confessed over this goat, and why did they take him out? They took him out where no one would ever see him again. Their sins would not be remembered First John or John 1.29 says, John saw Jesus coming and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want you to see that scapegoat analogy. All our sins were pronounced upon Jesus. Jesus took care not only of your sin, but he took care of your shame. And when shame is addressed, you don't need isolation. 
2 Corinthians 5, I'll hurry. So we're Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be an offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Hebrews 13, under the old system, the high priest brought the blood of animals into the holy place as a sacrifice for sin, and the bodies of the animals were burned outside the camp. So Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by his own blood. So let us then go outside the camp and bear the disgrace he bore. How do we overcome shame? We overcome it in two ways. We overcome it with Jesus' blood and by his word. Revelation 10, or 12, verse 10. I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last, salvation and power in the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser, the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before God day and night. And they defeated him two ways. The blood of the Lamb. And it says, and by their testimony. What was their testimony? Their testimony was praise and confessing the word of God that says, my shame has been addressed. I'm no longer isolated. I'm restored. I'm redeemed. I'm forgiven. I walk in fellowship with God. Look at it this way. A naked man related to a tree brought shame into the world. That's Adam. And a naked man related to a tree took shame out of the world. I don't remember how I put it in your notes. It's something like be naked or something like that. I, I don't really want you to physically follow that here in church. Um, but being naked is this. We can be and say who we really are. Jesus always had issues with those that were hypocritical. But he never had issues with those that were open about their shortcomings. 1 John 1, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there's no darkness in him. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we're living in the light as God is in the light, listen to this, we have fellowship where? With each other. So that deals with the isolation that comes from shame. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It addresses both issues, sin and shame. Now, I'm going to break you some news to you. Many of us have been hiding things in our life for a long time. And I'm, here's the news. God can see through fig leaves. John, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Remember, confess, I taught this uh, several months ago. Confess means homo legeo, to say the same thing. as It doesn't mean to give a litany of, you know, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. When I confess, God, you say this is this and I agree. Here's the good news, friends. Psalms 103. He removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Old Testament, their shame went out on a goat. Somebody might have come across that goat in the wilderness. 
when Jesus dealt with our shame, he took it so far that God says, as far as the east is from the west. Well, I don't know how far that is. Because how far can you go east? Now you say in the world, you come back around. But I'm talking in the universe. How far can you go? I don't know. Now, I told you everything wrapped up in the last sentence. Are you ready? Jesus has paid for our sin. Jesus has removed our shame. And Jesus, you're saying, how does this fit into this? Our best friend. Jesus has given us his spirit so we will never be alone. Who's your best friend? It's the Holy Spirit. Who is with you? Who's in you? He's closer than your breath. He's the source of all knowledge and truth. When you're going wrong, he can tap and say, hey, <clears throat> let's go this way. Who's your best friend? Jesus didn't leave you alone. He said, it's good that I go away. Why? So I can send the comforter. Who's the comforter? The Holy Spirit. Why did they need the Holy Spirit? Can you imagine? You've, just, you've studied the disciples. Jesus was a person. Yeah, you say he was God the Son. Yeah, I get that. But, you know, Peter goes over here and doing something because what Peter does. And we pick on him, but remember the other two guys, James and John, are called sons of thunder. What's that tell you? They got temper issues. How do you take care of Peter? He's over here messing with somebody, getting in, you know, getting in a fight or cutting somebody's ear off. Hmm? And those two are over here arguing, I think I get the better place. Huh? Jesus leaves us. He said, it's best that I leave because the Holy Spirit can come. And here's the good news. He can be with Peter. And he can be with James and John. He can be with Mark and Jill on the way home. And sometimes on that road, we need the Holy Spirit. People, put your phones down. Hmm? But you might need him too. He's your best friend. He's the Holy Spirit. Father, this morning, I pray that of any message I've preached to this church family, I pray this takes root and people will embrace the fact that you have given us your spirit. That your spirit dwells in us and is with us, is not ashamed of us, is not put off by our humanity, by our failures, by our shortcomings, by our mistakes. That the greatest gift after salvation was the gift of, I'm going to give you my spirit to dwell in you. May we receive it. It's a gift from Jesus. May we receive it. And may we walk with a conscious awareness that the Spirit of God is right there, available at every point in every need. Make that true in our lives, I pray. And as we do that, then we can be vulnerable with one another 
and fulfill your command to love one another. And by our love, all the world will know that we're your disciples. Amen and amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you're out there uh, watching on Facebook or on the, the web, thank you for being with us. God bless you. Have a great, great week. Remind you, if the Rivers is your church home, continue to be faithful in your giving. You know how to do that. Go to our website. It's a couple of clicks. Thank you. God bless you.